Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. I wonder if you've ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what exactly is the Christian Gospel? What did Jesus challenge his audience to believe as the Gospel or Good News? These are the most fundamental questions we can ask about the Bible, and there's a considerable amount of confusion, it seems, in the minds even of churchgoers about this basic question of the nature of the gospel as Jesus preached it. What did Jesus mean by the phrase so often found on his lips, the kingdom of God? When did you last hear a preacher or evangelist invite you to repent and believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God? as Jesus did with his audiences. We find that recorded for us in that great summary statement of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We've been talking about the location of the coming kingdom of God. I'm assuming that you've understood that the kingdom is a great fact, indeed the great fact, of the future. We know this at the most elementary level of the teaching of Jesus, he exhorts us as his followers to pray, Thy kingdom come. Now, you don't pray for something to come that has already come. That's plain common sense. This must show them that the kingdom of God is the great event of the future in the mind of Jesus. In fact, he said we're to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on the earth as it's being done in heaven. And so, you see, the kingdom of God is a time when God's will is done on the earth. Now, one doesn't have to be a very seasoned student of the Scriptures to know that the will of God is not presently being done worldwide. There's a great deal of anti-God activity on our earth at the present time. I'm sure you know that Paul the Apostle refers to the present age as the present evil age. And by that he meant a span of time from the coming of Jesus, in fact, much earlier from the fall of Adam, but specifically from the coming of Jesus right until the end of the age when Jesus returns, is called by Paul the Apostle the present evil age. You'll find that recorded in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. The Apostle John, the great apostle of love, was extremely intolerant of conditions on the earth as he knew it. He spoke of the whole world lying in the power of the devil or the evil one. First John verse 19. We know also that the book of Revelation depicts the entire world as being in the deceptive grip of the devil. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. There, Satan, or the devil, is described as the one who is currently deceiving the entire world. It sounds like pretty much blanket coverage, a deception that has far-reaching effects to the corners of the globe. So the New Testament is highly pessimistic about conditions as they are this side of the future second coming of Jesus. It exhorts us to escape the deceptions of the devil, to separate ourselves from the wicked ways of the world, and to come into close contact with the teaching of Jesus and the atmosphere provided by the apostles in their writings in the New Testament. And, of course, we should never forget the vital importance of the Hebrew Bible, that's 77% of our Bible that we perhaps mistakenly call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible on which Jesus himself was raised.
Now, according to the New Testament records, the world is in such a state of chaos and disharmony that it's absolutely necessary if the planet is to survive and if the human race is to survive that Jesus comes back to rescue us from the problems we have created by our not paying attention to God and his revelation. That's, of course, the promise of the second coming, which pervades the whole New Testament documents and indeed also the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. That's the reason we Christians are asked to pray, Thy kingdom come. That's simply a request that God will send his Son back to this earth and rescue us from the conditions that we ourselves have created to save the Christians and to reorganize the world on a sensible and sound basis by introducing a new government with its headquarters in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to become a new world worship center. The nations, as we read in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, will beat their swords into plowshares, their weapons into farm implements, and they will stream up to Jerusalem, the capital of the new kingdom, and Jerusalem will be renewed in that great day of the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, Jerusalem, of course, in those texts means the very same geographical Jerusalem as we now have it. The Jerusalem which is now in a state of great difficulty and turmoil. But that Jerusalem is going to become a new world center to which the nations will stream and they will beg for instructions from Jesus the Messiah and his colleagues, the saints of all the ages. That's plainly what the New Testament offers us as an objective and a hope as the prospect and goal of our Christian faith. There are many biblical texts which say that the saints are going to rule on the earth in the kingdom to be inaugurated at the future coming of Jesus in power and glory. That is, in fact, the good news about the coming kingdom of God, which preoccupied Jesus during the totality of his ministry and also was the, the chief concern of Paul the Apostle and the other apostles. That's the kingdom of God for which Jesus said we're to pray, Thy kingdom come. That's the kingdom, as in Matthew 8, verse 11, to which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets will come. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be gathered from their graves, from the graves in which they're now residing, and they will be ushered into the kingdom of God along with all the faithful of all the ages. The purpose of that gathering will then be to reconstitute a sound government on the earth. When Jesus himself rules as king on the re-established throne of David promised by the Hebrew Bible and confirmed by Gabriel when he visited Mary on the occasion of her conception. I've been pointing out that the promise of the archangel Gabriel to Mary is fundamental to the whole understanding of the Christian faith. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 onwards, we find that Gabriel arrived in the presence of Mary to announce the spectacular birth of a new and exciting son, the Messiah. Mary was to conceive and bear a child and her son was to be recognized as the Son of God. Precisely because of that marvelous and miraculous conception in the, in the womb of Mary, Jesus was to be called Son of God. You'll find that in Luke 1.35, Luke draws a causal connection between the miraculous birth of Jesus, or the miraculous conception of Jesus, perhaps we should say, and the fact that he is the Son of God. For Luke, that's what brings the Son of God into being by a divine creation 
worked as a miracle in the womb of this remarkable young Jewish lady, Mary. Now, it's a fact that the throne of David was a well-understood phrase at the time when Gabriel visited Mary. Every Jew who understood his Old Testament, even at a fairly superficial level, knew that there were multiple promises of the restoration of the throne of David in Jerusalem, as all the prophets had expected it. And so when Gabriel announced that Jesus was one day going to inherit and ascend to the throne of David, it was quite clear that Jerusalem had to be renewed, that the land of Israel had to be restored so that the Messiah could rule in power and glory. Now, what those early followers of Jesus did not initially understand was that there was to be a period of suffering for the Messiah. Indeed, he was going to be rejected by his people, and far from ruling on the throne of David at that time, he was actually crucified. Jesus, as you know, ascended no throne of David while he was here on the earth in the first century. On the contrary, they put him on the cross as a common criminal. They subjected him to a torturous death at the hands of the Romans with the encouragement of the Jews, and he died as if he was just a criminal suffering alongside a thief and another evildoer. But you see, the promise of the kingdom of God was still there. The promise of the throne of David to the Messiah still remained as an ineradicable hope in the hearts of those early believers. They suffered a crashing disappointment when the Messiah was put to death. And you remember in Luke 24:21, they had hoped, they said, that Jesus would have been the one to redeem Israel, as to say, to set up the kingdom of God and the throne of David in Jerusalem. But they were very disappointed, naturally, when this didn't happen. And yet with the resurrection, hope sprang anew in the hearts of those disciples, and they realized that Jesus, who had now been brought back to life by God his Father, was available then to take over the throne of David and rule the world from Jerusalem. And so in their last question to Jesus before he was taken to the right hand of the Father, they said this, and you'll find this in Acts 1 verse 6, Is this the time now for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is this the time when finally the promise of all the Hebrew prophets and the promise of the archangel Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1.32, is this the time for that great promise of the restoration of the throne of David in Israel to be fulfilled. And Jesus' answer to them, of course, was not what some think, well, you are very stupid to imagine that the kingdom is ever going to be restored. No, Jesus said no such thing. He simply told them that it was not for him to know and not for them to know at that stage when that great restoration would occur. Meanwhile, they were to be witnesses of Jesus and they were to be empowered by the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. And they went forth, as we know, to proclaim the very same good news about the coming kingdom of God as Jesus had proclaimed before them. Now, since the whole New Testament looks forward to a yet future restoration of the kingdom of David in Israel, it's not surprising that Jesus promised his followers in Matthew 5, 5, that they would one day inherit the earth or the land. Perhaps the land would be a better translation, or the sa although the same Greek word is used for both land and earth. And Jesus, when promising the earth or the land to his disciples, was simply quoting the promise made in the Psalms, Psalm 37, verse 11, and five other times in that very same Psalm 37. 
The story is entirely consistent, provided we realize that Jesus was a Jew living in first century Palestine, that the story of Jesus is based on the Hebrew Bible, that he's the promised Messiah, promised indeed by the whole of the scriptures of the Old Testament, what we really should call the Hebrew Bible. The announcement of Gabriel to Mary is entirely clear. What is predicted there is that Jesus is the one destined one day to ascend the throne of his father David. And that fact takes us back to the great promise made to David, and you'll find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised to David that there would be an ultimate descendant of David who would be destined to sit upon the throne of David and rule forever. In fact, God had promised in that 2 Samuel 7 chapter an extraordinary thing, a permanent dynasty for the house of David. And that dynasty would be occupied then ultimately by the Messiah, the King of Israel. And the word Christ, you know, in Jesus' name, Jesus Christ, simply means King of Israel. We're talking in the Bible about a Jewish empire, although we Gentiles have been very unhappy with that idea and have often tried to get rid of the Jewishness of Jesus, which makes him, in fact, unique. We invite you to consider these very important facts about Bible reading that Jesus was a Jew. That's all we have time for for today. Join us again as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.